Exodus chapter 35, if we can draw your attention there. And Lord willing, we are going to make an endeavor to kind of move at a little more of a rapid pace than we typically do. Um, Again, Lord willing, through chapters 35 to 39. And you'll see the reason behind that if you didn't read ahead. At this point in the book of Exodus now, God has given to Moses the instructions regarding the assembling of the tabernacle, the tent, the furnishings within that tabernacle that we've been looking at in the prior chapters, as well as the priestly garments for the institution of the priesthood with Aaron and his sons uh, to prepare things now for the tabernacle worship system and the sacrificial system, which we'll continue to look at as we move through our study in the Old Testament. And at this point now in chapter 35, we come to sort of the record now from chapters 35 through the remainder of the book all the way to chapter 40. Now we have the record of the assembling or I guess you could say the construction of the actual tabernacle and its furnishings and the garments for the priests themselves. And a lot of what we have here, you'll see, or if you've read ahead, you already know, is a reiteration of what we have already studied in our prior chapters, a lot of details, a lot of intricate description of detailed uh, uh, instruction of how things were to be built, the dimensions and the size of things and what particular materials were to be used and how they were to be put together. And a lot of what we discussed back in chapters 25 through 31 is just sort of reiterated now as in chapters uh, 25 through 31 and the prior chapters we've been studying. Basically, we had God giving that instruction to Moses as he was there on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. And kind of like Paul, the apostle says in the New Testament, that which I've received from the Lord, I delivered unto you. And that's sort of what happened. Moses, remember, as the shepherd leader of Israel was there in the presence of God, he was receiving that instruction from God regarding this tabernacle worship system. But then he was to take that instruction And he was to then deliver that to the people, the congregation of Israel, uh, and they were then to implement those things. They were then to take those instructions and they were then to implement them in obedience and actually construct the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. And they were then to operate and institute this tabernacle worship system with the priesthood and the likes of it. So what we really get here in these verses is a reiteration of what we've already studied and we've given exposition to that. So again, this is an act of mercy upon you. Uh, Uh, That we don't go back through that. And and again, if you weren't here for those prior studies, uh, you can listen to them, hopefully glean some of the understandings of some of those things. But what we have now is what Moses has received an instruction from the Lord. We have it now being implemented and actually addressed and constructed and assembled in the way it was given Prior, And I think by way of application, really what certainly you look at this and you think, man, why the repetition? Why the reiteration? I think one thing by way of application we see about God, not only is that God a God of detail and, and he wants to make sure we observe detail and pay attention. But I think these chapters, as they just reiterate a lot of what's already been discussed, show us that God's word is not something just to be heard. It's something that's ultimately to be heeded. In the prior chapters, God's word is being heard. Moses is receiving the word of the Lord. He's receiving instruction from the Lord 
but it's for the people of the Lord. He is to receive it and then to deliver it to them. But it's not something that he was just to hear and to rehearse. It was something that they were to hear and they were to heed. In these chapters, we see them heeding God's word. We see them responding to God's word. This is a section of scripture where they now have not only listened to what God says and learned it, but they're now, in a sense, living it out. They're now following the instructions. We'll see as we get to the end of the section where it says repeatedly, the children of Israel did just as the Lord commanded them through Moses. And it's a good reminder for us by way of application. They're now doing the word of God. They're now following God's instructions that God's word is never to just be an intellectual exercise. And God help us because it's so easy, isn't it? Let, let's be very honest. As a Bible reader, as a Christian, I hope you're reading your Bible on your own at home. I hope you're studying the scriptures that you love the word of God. If you come here on a Wednesday night, props to you. That's another indication as a part of this flock of believers that you're here at a midweek service studying the old testament that you have a real love for the word of god you have a hunger for the scriptures you want something more than even just a sunday morning sermon you want to learn the word of god and grow but god help us that we never just be bible students but instead that we be those who are disciples who want to follow what the scripture says and that we learn it so that we can live it out in our lives. And that that transition happens, just like people say that long journey of the 18 inches from our head to our heart. Well, there's also that difficult journey of, it seems, the word of God stirring our hearts and then going from uh, what we hear in bonded leather here to the shoe leather of our feet, down to our feet, where we actually walk it out and live it out, like James says, not just being a hearer, but a doer of the word. And it's so easy to struggle with that. I, I, I continually am asking, Lord, help me in the, you know, just to read something in my devotion, just read it and my heart is stirred, but then not to be changed by it or not to try and live out what it says, whether it's trusting God with a promise or obeying some area that the Lord's telling me to do something more regularly in my life or receiving a correction and and taking that reproof and altering my course and, and, and the same way when we hear Bible studies. This is nothing more as a church than just basically reduce ourselves to like an academic institution, like, like, like a church Bible club uh, or, or basically like a, uh, a, a college biblical course if all we're doing is just getting information and taking good notes and learning things and then going around and talking about and bragging about all this great new Bible knowledge we have. But if the Bible knowledge doesn't begin to change us, if we don't respond to it and obey it and implement it in our lives, truth be told, it's, it's not only worthless, it's actually dangerous. It's actually dangerous to receive knowledge and not act upon knowledge. God's word says is actually a dangerous thing. We begin to deceive ourselves. Better to learn less and to follow it than to learn more and to do nothing with it. And I think the application here, if nothing else, if you get bored and lost in the midst of the details or, or the rapid pace in which we kind of move through these things in more of a, a survey rather than a more deep exposition because of the particular passage we're in this evening, if nothing else, I hope you glean the reality that here God's words being, it's being implemented and applied and obeyed and responded to that God's word is something not just to be listened to and learned, but it's something to be lived out. 
to be acted upon, to be obeyed according to what it says to us. So chapter 35, we now get the record of them starting to construct and assemble the tabernacle. It starts by telling us, chapter 35, verse 1, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together, and he said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Again, he reiterates the Sabbath, which we have seen instruction regarding numerous times throughout these prior sections of Scripture. Again, God says, Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you. Again, it was a day, the idea of holy is it was a day set apart. It was set apart for rest and refreshment physically, mentally, and in every way. But it was also a day set apart for refreshment spiritually. Because the spirit of man as well, which is the place where we connect with God. Jesus said God is spirit. And those who worship God, true worshipers, must worship in spirit and in truth. Our spirit resonating and, 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 and experiencing God through his spirit, God who is spirit. The Bible says that we are dead, our spirit is dead in trespasses and sins and that we're made alive. Our spirit, you are in a sense, spirit, soul, and body and our spirit is made alive when the Holy Spirit quickens us in salvation. And the way we connect with God isn't just mentally and we connect with God in the spirit, that our spirit's made alive as the Holy Spirit indwells us. The Bible says that his spirit, Romans says, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And our spirit needs that refreshment. So God gave them the Sabbath, not just for physical rest alone. And of course, we know the Sabbath we've talked about is a picture of Jesus as well, that he is our rest, that in him we cease from our labors and efforts to try and be right with God. And we have peace and rest in our relationship with Christ because he is our Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of it. But it was a time for them to rest, to consecrate a day, to take a break from what they did. A Sabbath, verse 2, it says, of rest. Notice, it was to the Lord. It was a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. And whoever, God says, does any work on it shall be put to death. Now, that's pretty severe. That's pretty strict. Shows you how uh, severe God was in regards to the importance of this that they were to observe this Sabbath day. They were to discipline themselves, to disengage, to disengage from their regular activities, their regular affairs, their work, their labor. And they worked much harder than we do in many ways in today's culture because it was a survival mode of work in that day. It was hand-to-mouth living for many people. If you didn't till your ground and you know, work your, your, your occupation and your trade, many times you may not even have had food on your table that evening. So uh, these were diligent, hard-working people, but God knew they needed to disengage for times of physical and emotional and spiritual refreshment, to have a time of worship and a time alone together, in a sense, as family detached from other things. And he says, verse 3, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings. And many times fires were kindled not just for light and heat. I don't think that's what God's indicating, but they were kindled in order to do work, metal work and other things. Fire was a very useful thing in many of their industrious activities, so they were not to kindle any fire in that sense on the Sabbath day. But here, again, isn't it interesting? Why again does God reiterate? He's multiple times brought back up again the Sabbath instruction. Why does he reiterate the importance of observing Sabbath rest unto the Lord, that day of worship and rest and refreshment, right as he's about to enter into them actually doing the work itself of constructing and building 
the tabernacle worship system? I think it's because God realizes that here, like any of us, they're going to be excited. Okay, they've got the word of the Lord, the call of God. God's going to set his work before them. I want you to build this worship system. I want you to construct these things. Everybody's going to be involved giving and participating and doing their part, whether it's weaving uh, things for the coverings or making the garments or whether it's building things and, and, and doing manual labor. Everybody was going to be participating. Do, and like many of us, we hear about the work of the Lord or if God puts on your heart the thing that you're supposed to do, we're excited, we engage the work of God. But sometimes, truth be told, we can become so engaged in the work of God that we lose God in the midst of the work. And we think somehow that work can supplement or worse, replace worship in our lives. And God here is saying, listen, I know you're excited about the work. I appreciate you want to work for me and that you want to work real hard for me and that you're going to engage the work with all your heart and everything in you. And that pleases me. But he says, do not ever let work, even work that's spiritual, work for me, don't ever let that replace worship of me. Because you're resting in me personally and your worship of me personally must be the source and the basis that then is the overflow that empowers and enables you to do the work that you do with the right motives and with the power of God's spirit and for the right reasons in your life so I think he says look I know you're about to do a lot of work but before you do I just want to remind you make sure you also take time to rest and worship don't ever 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 even if it is serving the Lord ministry church work Ever let work replace worship. Always take time for worshiping the Lord. Make sure you discipline yourself to do that. God reminds them of this. Verse 4 says, Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, and then he begins to mention what things God would be receiving. Again, many of the materials that we've looked at for the construction of the tabernacle worship system and the garments for the priests and so forth, an offering of gold or silver or bronze, blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins of acacia wood, oil for the light, which would be the menorah, the spices for that special anointing oil that would be used to anoint the priest and for the sweet incense that would be put on the incense altar, the onyx stones to be set in the ephod and the blessed plate and all who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, its clasps. And as you run down all the way through the remainder of verse 19, basically there you have just a list an expanded list of the materials that they were collecting, that they needed to collect and assemble to follow the instructions to build the tabernacle worship system with its furnishings and the garments for the priesthood. And here the Lord now 
tells Moses that he is to stand before the people as this work of God is about to take place. They're about, again, this is, this is a, a, a work of the tabernacle of meaning. It, it's, it's a work that God wants to do to assemble this place of worship that would be a part of the centrality of their lives of worship as God's people, that they would have a place of worship, an altar, and a place that incense could be offered, remember, which is a picture of prayer. And, and the Lord tells Moses, listen, I want you to receive from the people an offering. I want you, in a sense, to offer the opportunity for the people to give a special offering. And he gives a list of the things specifically that could be used and that could be uh, taken to be able to follow God's instructions to construct these things. There from verse uh, uh, 5 all the way down through verse 19, there's this list of all the different things that they would be using. And notice, he says, whoever, verse 5, is of a willing heart. This wasn't a compulsory thing. God wasn't demanding that the people give. Uh, th there was no pressure put upon the people in a way whereby, look, if you're truly a part of this thing and you're really a part of this congregation, then you better do your share. There was none of this. Uh, this was just a free, this was an opportunity. The Lord said, I want to give the people an opportunity to participate. Again, think about it. God's a miracle working God. Has he not shown Israel that he's able to do miracles? He's parted Red Seas. He's turned brackish polluted water into sweet water to drink in the middle of the wilderness. He's been bringing manna from heaven. So if God needs gold, silver, bronze, acacia wood, I would say it'd be fair to to declare that God could just perform a miracle. If he can make manna fall from heaven, he can make gold show up behind a rock. I mean, he's not limited in what he's able to do. But what's God doing? He's giving the people a chance to participate, to give unto the Lord, to, to express back to God in a way their gratitude by participating. And, he, and he's raising children not to be greedy, selfish children. So he's giving them an opportunity to share an opportunity to share something of themselves. And again, maybe some could give gold and silver. Others say, I don't have no gold or silver, but I do have some goat's hair I can give. I, I actually do. I have, a, I have an acacia tree in my backyard. I can, out behind my tent, I can, I can cut that down and, and I can offer a few boards. If, whatever. And he gives them an opportunity to share. And notice, it was an offering, verse 5, it says, to the Lord. It wasn't for Moses and it wasn't necessarily per se just for the structure of worship itself. It was an offering to the Lord. It would be used for a structure that the worship of God was taking place in, but ultimately it was to be given to the Lord. And that's how offerings should be given. Voluntarily, freely to the Lord, to honor him, to bless him. We're giving it to him, in a sense giving it back to him as I guess proper English. But here God gives this opportunity now. In verse 20, it says this, All the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. So I want you to take note of that. He gives them the opportunity to give and to share. He says, we're going to receive an offering. The Lord wants us to take a special offering for this work of the tabernacle. He announces that. He gives them a list of things that they can bring if they choose to. And then it says the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. So they go home and then it seems they come back, verse 21, then everyone came whose heart was stirred. 
everyone whose spirit was willing. You should be underlining these terms because you see them repetitively. It's an indication of how God wants giving to happen. Those came back whose heart was stirred, whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and the holy garments. They came both men and women as many who had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings and the different uh, things that were offered. But again, we take note. I, I like this, how the Holy Spirit records for us. The invitation is given to participate and to bring an offering. And then Moses sends the people home. Now, I like that because, again, notice there's no pressure. There's no compulsory in the moment. You got to make your decision. And, and it, it, there's none of that. There's none of this. It is something that is very free. It's an opportunity to give. And there was time to decide. And really, genuinely, that is how giving should take place. The Bible says in the New Testament that God loves a cheerful giver, that we shouldn't give grudgingly or out of necessity. There shouldn't be a compulsion in the way that we give. I mean, in our fellowship here, do we on Sunday morning receive an offering? And we say we're going to receive the morning offering and a basket is passed for people to be able to participate. But again, we we use that word specifically, receive an offering. In other words, we're not trying to take your offering from you. Hey, we're, we're taking a collection. We're receiving the offering that you have already decided that you want to give to the Lord. It says that a man should give as he purposes in his heart. You should give to the Lord and you should give to the Lord in some way. I do encourage you in that way. I don't think the New Testament mandates percentages or how much we should give. It's a thing of grace. But you should give prayerfully. You should give purposefully. You should give systematically. And you should give, in a sense, relatively according to what you have been able to do and how God has prospered you and what you feel at peace with and what you think you're able to do. And that's different for everybody, but it's given to the Lord. And it's something that should be decided before you get to the house of the Lord. It shouldn't be something where, oh, great, here comes the basket. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's looking. Look, you shouldn't, that should never be your heart. There's no reward in that. It should be willing. And it's tragic that a lot of times our perspectives and guilt has been put upon us and we see things, like we don't need to talk, we see stuff that happens in the body of Christ and on television and people are pressured and compulsion and, and this is the night and you got to do it tonight and God's told me that five people in this room are, are, are led to give a thousand dollars. That's, that's ridiculous. We should all be able to see through that nonsense. And here we see biblical examples, both Old and New Testament, the people went home, there was no pressure, and it says, verse 21, people came back. They prayed about it, they thought about it, and they said, hey, you know what, Th this is what I can do. This is what I can, this is what I want to do. And, and, and it says, again, very clearly, those whose hearts were stirred, their spirit was willing, they brought the Lord's offering. Again, that's how we should give, with a willing heart. It was a voluntary contribution to God's work as an offering to the Lord, to, as an act of worship, to contribute and participate in the work of God's ministry and what he was doing among his people. They came, both men and women, as many as had, verse 22, a willing heart and brought, notice, their earrings, their nose rings, please, none of those, <laughs> rings and necklaces, 
all jewelry of gold. That is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord and every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair. <laughs> I don't have an earring, but I got a little goat's hair I can contribute. Red skins of rams and badger skins and they brought them. And everyone who offered, verse 24, an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. So again, some people brought jewelry, some people brought linen, some people brought red skins of rams, other people were able to bring some acacia wood that would be used in the structure of the tabernacle. Verse 25, and all the women, notice it was men and women both, who were gifted artisans, spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn and goat's hair. So again, there were women who were, notice in a sense, gifted, spirit-filled interior decorators. Those who were seamstresses and said, hey, I, I can't do this or I can't do that, but, but I, can, I can spin some yarn. I, I, I can knit some curtains, I, whatever I can do. And this is just the beauty of being able to give and participate in the work of the Lord. Everybody was doing something. Some, it seemed, from a perspective, were offering bigger amounts. And, but again, what does Jesus in the New Testament portray as great giving? He, he portrays what that widow who gave just two mites. Now, see, it's not the amount in giving, it's the attitude of the heart that the Lord sees. He said, you see that widow who just gave a, a fraction of a, of a cent? All these people put big checks in and she said she gave more than everybody. Because some of the people that were putting in big checks, it didn't, they could afford to put in big checks. It didn't do nothing. It was really nothing for them to be able to do that. But for her, the attitude of her heart and the sacrifice it was to her, those few fractions of a cent, she really needed. But she wanted to give them to the Lord because she loved the Lord. And Jesus, again, indicates it's not the amount because it's not that God's needy. We don't give because God's needy. We give out of an attitude of our heart that wants to worship the Lord with what we do, whether small or big. It's just something that we want to do to bless and honor the Lord as a part of our worship, to show we rely upon Him, we acknowledge He is the giver of all things, He is the one that's blessed us, and that we want to have that... You know, it's a wonderful thing. It is a joy. It is a joy as a Christian. For me, as a fellow Christian, to be able to, to give an offering to the Lord, to, to you know, write the check that I do to this church, to, to say, Lord, I want to participate in what you're doing. I want to have ownership in it. I, I want to participate in what you're doing on the mission field. I want to share in that. I want to know somehow that I am partnering together in that and Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's a wonderful way to have your heart connected to the things of the Lord. And here you see the men and the women all coming, making contributions. Verse 27, the rulers who seemed to be maybe those who were of maybe even greater affluence among the congregation. They brought some of the more precious things like the onyx stones that to be put in the ephod and the breastplate and spices for the oil and the light and the anointing oil. Uh, and the children of Israel, verse 29, brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts, again, notice, were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which uh, the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, 
the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design. Remember, this was the gifted craftsman that was called by God to actually perform some of the metal work and the craftsmanship. And it says, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving of wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. So this was sort of the... The, the, the on-site uh, sort of you know, construction overseer here, a very gifted individual. And notice, though he would be doing physical manual work, uh, this was someone who it says was filled with the Spirit of God, filled with wisdom and understanding. The skills, the capabilities, the talents he had, they were from the Spirit of God. It took just as much of the Spirit of God to do craftsmanship and carving and, and these kind of things as it did for those who spoke the Word of God. He, this is what he was called to do. This is what he was anointed to do, but this was a part of the participation. And if Bezalel didn't do this, then the priests didn't have a place to minister in. They didn't have what they needed to be able to do the other aspects of the worship system. There was this combined effort. And this was the man God called and set apart. Verse 34 also said that God had put in his heart the ability to teach. That is apparently to teach others so that they could contribute and do the same things. He would, in a sense, disciple and mentor others by teaching them the same skills to serve in the ways that he could. God put in his heart the ability to teach. And you know what? If you teach in any way, whether it's teaching children or teaching a home Bible study or, or, or even just teaching others in the same ministry God's given you. And I hope if God's put you in a ministry in this church or somewhere else and you've been serving there a little longer maybe than others or serving there and now new people come in, that you take it upon yourself to say, hey, how can I equip this person? How can I help teach this person how to do what I've been doing? To replicate myself, to duplicate myself, to help train them, whether it's a younger person you take up alongside you or just someone new to teach it. Listen, that's an ability that God gives. It's an ability to teach and to be able to share. And this man had an ability not just to do what he did, but also to teach others how to learn how to do some of the same things. In him and a holy adverse 34 of the tribe of Dan, he has filled him with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and designer of the tapestry maker in blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver and those who do every work of those artistic designs. So these were the men. We talked about them earlier. God had spoken about them and now they're beginning to engage the ministries in which they were called to to implement what God had instructed Moses. In verse 31 of chapter 36, Bezaleel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan whom the Lord had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do all according to the Lord has commanded. And then Moses called Bezaleel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. Again, I, I love this. If you have a heart to serve the Lord, notice the Lord stirs people's hearts to the ministry that he calls them to. The Lord puts in your heart the wisdom and the understanding how to do that ministry that he's called you to. 
And God calls us all to ministries. And those ministries are different for each one of us. But God wants to use you. God has a ministry for you as a man, as a woman, as a young man, as a young woman, as an older person. Listen, God has ministries for all of us to do and he enables us to do those ministries. He puts in our heart the wisdom and the understanding of how to do that work that he specifically wants us to contribute our part to his kingdom. And they received from Moses, verse 3, all the offerings that the children of Israel had brought for the service of making the sanctuary. And it says, verse 3, so they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. So every morning, people keep coming back. Here's another set of offerings. Here's more offerings. Every morning, people are bringing back more and more of these materials we saw back in chapter 35. And look what happens, verse 4. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came each from the work that he was doing. And they stopped what they were doing. They come to Moses and they say, uh, Moses, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment and caused it to be proclaimed throughout the whole camp of Israel saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And all the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, they had too much. Now, that's probably the first time in history that's ever happened. <laughs> People were bringing so much to the work of the Lord, it actually started to accumulate more than they could even use. And, and the workers came to Moses, look, we have way more than what we need. In fact, we have too much. We're tripping over supplies because we have so much you need to tell the people to stop. So Moses issues a decree. Everyone stop giving. Can you imagine that? Everybody stop giving. You're giving too much. We, don't, we can't use it as quick as you're bringing it. You're giving weight. And the people actually had to be restrained, it said, from giving to the work of the Lord. I love the language in verse 7. It says, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, in fact, it was too much. Listen, this is a great reminder. God's work done God's way will never lack God's resources. God's work done God's way will never lack God's resources. You know, Moses doesn't have to do any pressure tactics. He doesn't have to do any gimmicks, thermometers, make the people feel bad. He doesn't have to mention it continuously, week after week, meeting after meeting. He mentioned it one time. And then what happened? The Spirit of the Lord was stirring people's hearts. Because listen, when God wants to do something, God will stir people's hearts to get done what He wants to do. I, I tell you this, when, when, when God... Here's where the problem happens, is a lot of times in ministries, we don't pray or people don't pray and seek the Lord, so they pursue something or they take on something or some project or program and they over-engage more than what God really wanted and then... They get themselves in a place where people's hearts aren't stirred to engage the immensity of what maybe was stepped into. So then now you've got to pressure the people. You've got to catch up. You need a little more. We, and, and that's where this stuff begins to happen. Listen, when we stay in step with the Lord and we do what God's doing, whether it's a personal venture of faith you take to serve the Lord in some way or, or things that are happening among the Lord's church and a congregation, adequate resources will always be supplied. God will always finance 
his work. We don't have to look to the world to finance God's projects. And we don't have to beat people up and pressure them to find. If God's doing something, he'll stir people's hearts. I have seen it. I have watched it. I have experienced it. God hasn't changed. He always does it. And here, there was sufficient, there's the term, sufficient for all the work to be done. When God's doing a work, there will be sufficient resources supplied. He'll make sure to do that. Now, verse 8 and going forward here, and this is where you can strap your seatbelt on. We'll pick up some lightning speed. We begin now to read, again, almost a reiteration of a lot of these furnishings and the tabernacle itself and the things now just being constructed. Verse 8 says, Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made the curtains woven of fine linen. Now, basically, chapter 36 describes the actual construction of the tent itself, the tabernacle. Remember, it had four different coverings. It had a wooden frame of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and then the four different coverings. The interior covering, as mentioned here in verse 8, was that of fine linen, made also with the artistic uh, uh, cherubim on it. Down in verse 14, another one of the coverings was made of goat's hair. So they began to construct the, uh, the uh, covering, the layer of goat's hair. Verse 19, it mentions the covering that they had to make of ram skins dyed red and the badger skins that went above that sort of to waterproof the tent. Verse 20 reminds us the tabernacle was made, as we said, of boards of acacia wood standing upright. And then it gives the dimensions of the board and how they constructed them and, and fit them together. Verse 34 reminds us that those boards were then overlaid with gold and made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. So again, picturing as we talked about Christ, the, the acacia wood a natural substance, the wood in some ways, I think foreshadowing the humanity of Jesus. Gold is always the metal of divinity and, and we call the hypostatic union the fact that Jesus was both human and divine, that he was God and man. And so you have this wood overlaid with gold, the picture of humanity and divinity in some ways pictured even there in the structure, the skeletal uh, stability of the tabernacle itself. Verse 35, there was that veil, remember, in the temple of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. If you remember, there was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the two chambers or rooms uh, that were there in the tabernacle that we talked about, the front room and the one in the rear where the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant was. There was that veil. Verse 37, they made the screen for the tabernacle door that was the entryway and that had blue and purple and scarlet thread uh, and fine woven linen. Uh, chapter 37 then begins to describe now some of the furnishings that went into the tabernacle and outside in the courtyard. The first thing that they made, and you notice that's the term you see repetitively stated, now they made the altar or made, excuse me, the ark of acacia wood. Again, before we got instructions, you shall make, now they're making it. They're actually assembling and constructing these things exactly according to the instructions that God gave to Moses. So they made the ark of acacia wood, and the dimensions there again, two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half its width, 
and a cubit and a half its height and overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made that molding around it that was ornate. And verse 6 speaks of then the mercy seat of pure gold that was two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half its width. So remember the Ark of the Covenant Uh, As we refer to it, the ark was put into the rear room, that 15 by 15 portion of the tent in the back. And this was where the Shekinah glory of God or the presence of God would be manifest there over the mercy seat. It's described this mercy seat in verse 6 that was put as a lid on top of this box, the ark. And it describes it here of being gold. Now, If that gold was, and we're speculating here, if that gold described there in verse 6 was one inch thick, the lid that went on top of the ark, that mercy seat, would weigh somewhere around 750 pounds of gold. I mean, so, I mean, imagine them constructing these things as they're putting them together. And again, the value of all these things, I mean, this was a, a very costly project, if you really think about it. Uh, we'll see some of the inventory in the chapter ahead of of the incredible expense that was put into this portable tent, a temporary worship system that they were going to use for a time, and then they were just going to discard and ultimately move on and, and build a permanent temple. But God didn't spare expense. God wanted it beautiful. God wanted it to be a blessing to his people, even though it was just a temporary structure. Verse 10, it says, And he made the table of acacia wood and again remember that was the table of showbread as you went into the first room the holy place the 12 loaves of bread were there which represented the 12 tribes of Israel and reminded us of how Jesus is the bread of life uh, to sustain us pictured in the table of showbread verse 17 remember across from the table of showbread was then that lampstand of pure gold of hammered work Uh, That was the menorah, uh, the oil burning lamp that was there, the light inside of the tabernacle to give light to the priests to minister and to do their job and their uh, priestly activities there to perform their ministry. A picture of, again, how Jesus is the light of the world and how he is the light that's provided for us and then how, again, how it was an oil lamp perpetually burning as the oil would burn. A picture, no doubt, of that ministry of the Spirit of God as we think about it. Verse 25, they then also made the altar of incense. Remember, that went right in front of the veil that would then separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And the altar of incense was where that fragrant incense was burnt and it ascended up. And we talked about how that's a picture, a representation of prayer. Uh, you know, let my prayer rise before you as incense, the psalmist says in the, in the book of Psalms. And we discussed the altar of incense and what that represented. Then verse 29, that holy anointing oil and the pure incense of spices according to the work of a perfumer. You still with me here? All right. <laughs> Told you it was going to be lightning speed. Verse 38, or chapter 38, they then also made the altar of burnt offering. And if you remember, that was to be built of acacia wood. And the altar of burnt offering then was overlaid with bronze, a different metal. This was out in the courtyard. 
If you remember, we talked about that. This is where the sin offerings and the trespass offerings and the fellowship or peace offerings would be made by the priests as the sacrifices were brought there in the temple courtyard. And we'll read uh, the usage of this a lot in the book of Leviticus. When we get to it, we'll read about the different types of sacrifices and offerings that were made here on this altar of burnt offering, which was overlaid with bronze, as you can see again in verse 2. And then down in verse 8, they constructed the other furnishing that was in the courtyard area itself, outside of the tabernacle tent itself, and that was the laver, the bronze laver that was made from the bronze, uh, and that was, remember, had water in it, and that was where they would wash, ceremonial washing, and where they would cleanse themselves, the priests, it was a picture, no doubt, of the washing of the water of the word and how the priests themselves needed to be cleansed uh, as they were conducting their uh, activities of slaughtering and offering the animals. But notice how this was made. Verse 8, this is interesting. He made the labor of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting so that bronze laver, a little interesting insight the Holy Spirit gives to us, was made by the donation of bronze mirrors that were brought by the women who served in some way as a part of the ministry in that day. But again, these mirrors probably were brought from Egypt. We know that Egypt was the place, ancient Egypt, of the origin of eye makeup. And they would make their mirrors out of bronze. They would flatten it and they would highly polish the bronze uh, or brass to be able to then see the reflection in it. So these mirrors probably that had came from Egypt that were a representation of what? Convenience and vanity and what somewhat is material you know, uh, in their lives. And what a beautiful thing here as the work of the Lord is happening that you, you have these women who said, you know what? My temporal conveniences are not more important than the things of God. And you know what? I, I, I'd rather see God's work advance than to just have an extra mirror or something vain for myself. And just, just again, the Holy Spirit incorporates it because God takes notice of this. They were forsaking, in a sense, a temporal convenience, a material enjoyment. Nothing wrong with these things. But they donated their mirrors, in a sense here, so that this bronze laver could be constructed for the work of God and the ministry uh, to be advancing in their day. Just a, a beautiful little insight there the Holy Spirit gives to us. Verse 9 says they then made the court area, remember that as well, had sort of a fence that went around it, the posts as well as the curtain that went around it, about 15 foot high around the whole courtyard, and it describes all of that through the remainder of chapter 38 down to verse 21 of chapter 38, where it says, this is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony, which was was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And what's described here from verse 21 down through the remainder of the chapter is literally, as it says in verse 21, the inventory. The inventory of all the different, particularly precious metals that were used, predominantly gold, silver, and bronze. Verse 24 describes the inventory of gold given for the offering, and it says it was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
And when you calculate that, and we can't be dogmatic according to what's believed the weight of a talent was, that's over 2,000 pounds of gold. Somewhere over around 2,200 pounds of gold went into this tabernacle. A portable, temporary worship system. Verse uh, 25 describes the silver, again, the, the 100 talents, so that's three to four times the amount of gold that was given, was given in silver. So if you have over 2,000 pounds of gold, you have almost 8,000 pounds of silver. And then over in verse 29, it refers to the bronze, and the bronze was about 75 talents, so sort of somewhere in between the gold and silver. Now, again, I just step back and say, wow. That, that's, that's an incredibly ornate and valuable worship system. But what does it remind us of? Again, that, that God puts priority on the things of his kingdom. And God spares no expense in the things of his kingdom. Because see, God's value system of money is not the same as ours. And he, here's the way I would help you equate that in your mind. In heaven, what does the book of Revelation tell us? In heaven, the street is paved of what? Gold. Okay, wow, streets of gold. Here's what I see. What do we pave our streets with here? What, what's Tilton Road paved with? Asphalt, right? A common substance, because it's a street. It's a street. In heaven, God says gold's about as common as asphalt. That's about how important it is to me. It's like asphalt. You know, here we have people coveting gold. What's the going rate for gold? How can I trade for gold? And, and we got to buy gold because value's in gold. Don't have right... God goes, gold is about as important to me as asphalt. It's, it's just common. God, is, God equates the value system of things much different than us. And that's why God doesn't spare expense. That's why, remember, Jesus commended when Mary broke the spike nard, a year's worth of wages in one momentary act of worship because she wanted to honor Jesus with that spike nard. And all this, said, what a waste! That was a year's wages! We could have fed... All the poor people all around Israel and she just wasted it all in worship. But see, God's value system is different. And I think it's important for us to remember that. Sometimes we think that we shouldn't spend so much and maybe God says we should. Other times maybe we think we should spend a whole lot and God says, no, I think that's a waste. I don't think you should spend that much. It works both ways. God's value system is very different. But the resources belong to the Lord and, and we just we exercise the usage of them whether personally or in ministries the way God wants us to. And we realize that God created a very beautiful tabernacle here even though it was a tent in a sense used for worship among their dwellings in the wilderness. Chapter 39 records then the garments of the ministry, verse 1, for the priests that ministered and the holy garments. Verse 2, it describes the ephod that was made according to instruction. Verse 8 describes the, ble the breastplate, remember, that had the 12 stones worn over the chest of the high priest, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel and how the priests and the ministers were to have God's people over their heart and they were to care about the people. They weren't to use the people. They were to, to take care of the people and they were to love them and carry the people close to their heart. And God wanted the priests to remember that. Verse uh, 22 describes the, the uh, construction of the actual robe itself of the ephod. Verse 27, the tunics that were artistically woven. And verse 28, the turban, remember, that was sort of the hat that went on the priest's head. And verse 29, the sash of fine woven linen.
made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. And look at verse 32 of chapter 39. It says, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? It was finished. It wasn't left undone. God's into finishing things. He's into completing things. We'll talk more about that as we look at chapter 40 a little bit next week together. But all the work was finished. And again, how? The children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And as you read from here to the end of the chapter, that phrase is repeatedly brought up. They did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses so that they followed instructions specifically. Uh, Look at verse 42 and 43 as the chapter closes. It says, According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses, look at it, it says, Moses, he looked over all that work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so They had done it, and Moses blessed them. Now, again, as I look at these chapters, let me leave you with a few thoughts that I think this kind of reminds me of, and I think by way of application, we should remember for our lives. First of all is this, is that God is concerned about us following his instructions. And I emphasize the word his. God is concerned with us following his instructions. They did according to the word of the Lord that God commanded Moses. Remember, God was very strict with Moses about it must be made exactly the way that I said. Now, we know part of that from Hebrews is because this somehow, this tabernacle was a representation of something that exists in the eternal dimension. And therefore, somehow in the eternal realm, these things represent part of the eternal dimension. And so God said, look, it's got to be made according to pattern. You've got to follow my instructions. That's why Moses probably when they were done said, okay, now I need to evaluate and check everything because it's got to be done. But here it says repeatedly in the chapter that they did exactly according as to the way God commanded Moses. They did it. And God is concerned about us following his instructions. And I say that because we are not to take God's instructions and think that we have the liberty to alter them to suit ourselves. If God gives you an instruction about something, if God gives me an instruction about something, it is not my freedom to alter his instructions a lot or even a little to accommodate myself. Well, if I follow those instructions specifically, Lord, that's that's not going to quite accommodate what I prefer here. So I'm just going to make a slight adjustment to accommodate my interest, my preference, my comfort. No, if God gives an instruction, follow the instruction obediently, faithfully, courageously, specifically, because you don't know the big picture. But be faithful in that little simple instruction because it matters much to the Lord, despite whether you understand it or not, follow his instructions specifically. Secondly, notice that Moses looked over all the work he evaluated. And it reminds me that our work for the Lord is going to be evaluated, but by one much greater than Moses. His name is Jesus. And when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it speaks of our works coming before the Bema seat of Christ being tested by fire. All of our works, ladies and gentlemen, for the Lord are going to be evaluated. Every work that you do for the Lord, it's going to be evaluated by him someday, by one much greater than Moses. 
In fact, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to each one according to his works. Every work you do for the Lord, it's going to be evaluated by Jesus, and it's going to be rewarded by Jesus. The last thing it says here in verse 43, it says that after Moses inspected everything, it says, and then Moses blessed them. I don't know what that means, if he prayed a blessing over them, if he, but I just love what it says. Moses blessed them for what? Their obedience to God's command and God's instruction. And I think this is a good reminder for us, as Moses in many ways, as we said, is a picture of Christ, a type of Christ, that obedience to the Lord's commands, listen, it's not just right. That's numero uno. Obedience to the commands of the Lord is right. If the Lord commands me to do something, if the Lord commands you to do something in his word or he speaks to us, it is right to obey. It's our responsibility to obey. But obedience to the commands of the Lord aren't just right. They also make us a candidate to then receive his blessing in our life. God blesses obedience. Moses inspected their obedience and all that it did. And it says Moses blessed the people. And one greater than Moses, Jesus, guess what? He's not just pleased when you do what's right and you obey him. He'll bless you for it. He will bless your obedience. Follow his instructions specifically, faithfully, courageously. And, 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 and whether you understand it or not, don't alter, don't deviate. Just do what he says. Follow his instructions because he's going to evaluate what you do. And here's the glorious thing, though he doesn't have to, he's going to reward you and bless you for it because he always blesses obedience. 